I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Katie Hickman. Katie Hickman is the author of nine books, including two best-selling works of non-fiction, Daughters of Britannia, which was in the Sunday Times bestseller list for 10 months and was made into a 20-part series for BBC Radio 4, and Courtesans. She has also written a trilogy of historical novels, The Avery Gate, The Pindar Diamond, and The House of Bishopsgate, which have been translated into 20 languages. Her other books include two highly acclaimed travel books, including Travels with a Mexican Circus, which was shortlisted for the Thomas Cook Travel Book Award. Her most recent titles include the historical She Merchants, Buccaneers and Gentlewomen, British Women of India. Born into a diplomatic family, she has lived all over, growing up in Spain, Ireland, Singapore and South America. But today she lives in London. Welcome to our shows, Katie. It's a real pleasure to have you here today. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, Virago is publishing your new book, Bravehearted, the dramatic story of women in the American West at the end of May. And I was lucky enough to read an early copy so we could talk about it a little bit here today. Um, And so this is a period of history, the stories we've been told about which have traditionally been, as you write in the book, very male and also very white. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what got you interested in the women behind the scenes, as it were, in this particular era of history? Well, I I had the idea for this book. I mean, it was something that I had been wanting to do for a really long time. I mean, years, um, because I bought a book of photographs a long time ago in uh, that very famous bookshop in Paris called Shakespeare and Co. And it was a book of these beautiful black and white pictures showing women, you know, on the, on the road, going across the prairies in wagons, um, you know, like something out of the little house on the prairie. Um, but then also it included, it had a much wide, wider range of women in there than you would have imagined. So it included pictures of Native American women. Mm. It had African-American women. It had Chinese women. It had a, it had a whole range of different people. And this is the fourth book that I've done, which is about this sort of like a group, taking a group of women and and telling their story. Mm. And it seemed to me that, that, you know, these pictures weren't enough and that it was, it was, 
it was time to delve into their stories and let them and let them speak. And it's incredibly well documented. Mm. That was one of the things that was so extraordinary about doing the research is that is that there all these women who took part in what was essentially these waves of migration over a number of different years, which opened up the West. You know, it's the story of what Hollywood would call the Wild West, mm. I suppose. Uh, and and so many of them wrote accounts of of this extraordinary two, more than two thousand miles. If they went from, you know, the frontier all the way across to the to the far west, the Pacific. Um, and there's something like I think there are you know many many thousands of of accounts by these women who who wrote diaries and kept records of what happened to them along the way. And they weren't just you know the, they weren't just the middle class women, the well educated women. They were women you know only only just literate women so oh. so one of my favorite diaries this amazing woman called Ketera Belknap and she wrote a diary all her life long not just when she was on this amazing journey and it's written exactly as she must have spoken so there's very very little punctuation in it it's just like a kind of stream of consciousness <laughs> Written, you know, now I'm sitting in the, you know, now I've packed up all my wagon and now I'm sitting in the wagon and now I've got my workbox on my lap and we're ready to go. You know, so it has this incredible immediacy about it. And there's something very, very poignant about the fact that her spelling is very idiosyncratic. Her punctuation is almost non-existent. You know, it was written sort of, she's a working woman, you know, writing on the hoof. And 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 she's produced this incredibly vivid, um, incredibly vivid account. And I'm 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 a sucker for all of that. I just think it's absolutely riveting. <laughs> well, I think this is something that I was really surprised about in the book that how many first-hand accounts you were drawing on, how much kind of material there was out there. Because I think I was labouring under the misapprehension that perhaps these stories hadn't been told because they hadn't been written down or there wasn't a lot of evidence. But on the contrary, there was a huge amount of evidence. And like you write in the book, it's fascinating evidence because it really gives a very textured account of these women's day-to-day lives, right? And exactly what life is like. The men weren't writing the same sort of stuff if they were writing about it. No, I mean, you know, it is is always the case that that, you know, women write about the day-to-day, you know, they write about what life was really like, you know, I'm talking about Ketera Belknap, for example, you know, she's terribly proud of the fact that, that you know, she's got these clean white uh, tablecloths, yeah. I don't imagine that they were going to stay clean <laughs> or white for very long, but she's very house proud, so, you know, in her in her equipment that she takes is these clean white tablecloths, so when they stop for their midday, you know, their midday meal, she can lay it all out on the table, and women were obviously you know concerned with this these kind of minutiae of how they what they giving their families enough to eat how they washed their clothes how they looked after their children you know men were talking about I don't know men did tend to write but they didn't tend to write the kind of Mm. domestic detail that was women's work but if you if you read it today it's the women's accounts of the daily life, the domestic, the granular domestic detail that it that really stands the test of time. Mm. And the men's, and I'm not just talking about you know w- w- women going across the prairies like this. I'm I'm talking about you know men who wrote who wrote you know generally speaking if they if they travelled they were writing about the geology of the place or the weather or mm. you know things that are incredibly dry and frankly completely unreadable today. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas these accounts are fascinating because it's Absolutely. a very different kind of writing. 
and we can and they're so relatable as well yeah yeah you know you you immediately think god how what would i have done if i you know could i have done that would i what would i have done if i'd had to you know give birth half or you know in the middle of the prairie storm Mm. as so many of them did it's very relatable and i think the other thing that i was surprised about again reading the book was how the sort of usefulness of women and i say that in the broadest sense but the fact that obviously they were needed to do certain sort of domestic tasks um in these in these situations but also you talk very you know a lot about situations where country marriages were were happened between people out on the on the trail and the alliances that were formed between various tribes because of the way that women were kind of moved between yes. western um you know white uh, the kind of yes. the pioneers as it were and then the, the indigenous people i mean again this is fascinating i didn't know any of this had sort of happened no i have to say i didn't either i mean it was a complete revelation to me i thought i was going to write one kind of book and <laughs> i ended up just by the weight of research writing a book completely a completely different book to the one that i imagined i was going to write and the native american women you know the the stories that i was able to find out about them were were one of the great joys of writing this book because um you know, Native American women tended not to write anything down for obvious reasons. So so their stories are, are harder to come by, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist. And in the sort of pre-migrationary time, so, so the, these migrations started in about 1840. But, but And before that, the only white Americans who had made the journey across America, across the, what is the West, so across the prairies and the Rocky Mountains and what lay beyond the Rocky Mountains, were known as mountain men. So they were trappers and traders in fur. And there were not very many of them, I mean, in hundreds um, only in, on this, in this huge area. And so almost all of them without exception made as you rightly referred to made what are called country marriages so they married native american women uh, often they had their white families and white wives back you know back in the east sometimes not sometimes they were genuine marriages of genuine affection and in fact some of the some of the most some of the stories that I've st- have stayed with me more than any others are the ones where it was a real love match, where you know a Native American woman and her her white trader husband were genuinely really attached to one another. But they were strategic marriages. So if you married into a particular tribe, um, then you were considered as kin, and that gave you great advantages as a as a over other people. You could travel through certain lands without being, you know, without um, anyone trying to stop you. It gave you huge strategic advantages. And really interestingly, it was the women who were in charge of doing the the actual trading itself. They were the ones who who sat down with with these skins. So it would be bison, uh, you know, any, any kind of fur. Beaver was the most popular one from the Rockies, skunk bison hides all, all of those things it was the women who really got down to brass tacks and did the and did the trading <laughs> absolutely it's just such a great idea they were the really ones who could really drive a tough bargain and the men nice. who were probably in charge of the actual physical hunting of the of the of the skins you know left it to them because that they were better at it <laughs> Yeah, not what you expect at all. No, not what I expect at all. I mean, that's the thing. I think I loved this book partly because it was so eye-opening, but also, you know, it was fascinating to read you writing 
that you hadn't written the book you set out to read to write and I wasn't reading the book that I thought I was setting out to read as well I wouldn't know about some of these stories um I'm conscious that I I sort of feel terrible because I want to talk about this wonderful book for the entire episode but we do have to move on to some other questions but before then one last question about this there are so many brilliant examples of fascinating women in this book is there one that stands out for you just to tell a kind of brief story to our listeners one story that I found extraordinarily poignant is the story of Olive Oatman mm. and I don't know what version of the book you had you uh, you probably saw a picture of her yeah yeah, yeah. Really, I'm so yeah. glad you chose her she's one of my favorites yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. good good yeah. Well, Olive, so Olive Oatman I'll try and tell it briefly um her family were Brewsterites so it was a kind of branch of Mormonism so they were making their way to find the promised land in the west and anyway it all went horribly wrong they all died uh, um, they all died of you know, disease or starvation. And in the end, there were just two families, Olive's own family. I think there were six siblings and her parents. And they were attacked by a Native American tribe and they were all killed except for Olive and her sister. And Olive and her sister, Marianne, were taken into captivity by one tribe. They were taken as slaves. But about a year later, they were bought by some traders from a neighbouring tribe called the Mahave. So this is right down in the south, down in Arizona. And so Olive and her sister went to live with the Mohave tribe as not really as slaves, but they were sort of adopted into the tribe. It was a totally different scenario. And they came to be to both be loved by the tribe and to love the tribe. These two orphaned, uh, you know, teenagers um, became completely integrated as the Mahave. And one of the ways that we know that that was so, in fact, her brother, amazingly, her brother, who she thought had been killed with the rest of her family, had in fact survived. And he then spent many years sending out rescue parties to try to find his two surviving sisters. Marianne subsequently died of starvation. But anyway, finally, they managed to rescue, quote unquote, Olive, and when they finally, when she finally made her way back to this place called Fort Yuma, so it was a very, very um, remote American military outpost right down in the south in Arizona, this young woman had almost forgotten how to speak English, and she ha- had tattoos on her body, which is a sign of acceptance into the tribe. There's a lot of discussion afterwards as to how she'd in fact been treated. So the whole of the side of her face was tattooed. And I think she also had tattoos on her on her arms as well, although obviously in in later photographs of her you don't see that, but you see her tattooed face. Um, and she and and the, the sort of poignancy of the story really is how hard she obviously found it to reintegrate back into you know into all, her former life into white into the white world. And she wrote uh, with the help of this man called the Reverend Stratton. She and her brother. Uh, wrote an account of what had of what had happened to them, and there were various versions of this, which became more and more kind of white supremacist propaganda. So the story became had was really taken away from Olive, and it became the story of the Reverend Stratton, who knew what sold, and what sold was a story about white slavery, white slavery, and and uh, terrible behave, you know, terrible, cruel, cruel treatment, uh, you know, of this white woman at the hands of the Mahave, which was not true. Uh, it was absolutely n- not the case. She was treated incredibly kindly. I won't give examples here, but the the tribe really did take her to their hearts and treated her like a like a daughter of the tribe. And when her sister died. 
everyone was distraught and grieved terribly for the dead, you know, the dead sister, the dead Marianne. Um, but it's just, you know, the story of that, um, of that evolution of her story and how it was taken and how it was manipulated by a man um, uh, until you really felt that it, the story really had almost nothing to do with Olive, with Olive Oakman at all. And she was, you know, kind of put on the road. She was almost like a peep show, you know, taken around, yes. around the countryside and displayed. And of course, it was quite titillating. People wanted to go and see her tattoos because mm-hmm. they were rather thrilling. Uh, and and then so the tattooed lady we've all you know we all know about the tattooed lady in sort of carnival shows and uh, you know freak shows and circuses of various kinds. The tattooed lady then became a thing all entirely because of Olive, who's who I've always thought of her as rather a tragic figure. You know, she kind of belonged to belong nowhere by the end she wasn't fully mahave i think she was probably happy with the mahave actually but she was never really fully white ever again and she was always a bit of a you know treated like a freak and because of the tattoos you know she that that was an indelible thing that could never that could never be changed so she became she became her own story and there was which had been manipulated by somebody else uh, to make money, you know, Reverend Stratton wanted to make money out of this sensational account. And it's quite interesting comparing the different accounts. There were three or four different ones. And each, you know, one became increasingly sort of hysterical um, and uh, increasingly, you know, it was a sort of like propaganda for white supremacists. Well, I think it's such a brilliant story. I'm so glad you chose it partly. And I think it stood out for me because it really summed up, I think, what was at the heart of this your wonderful book is that not only are there these completely forgotten stories of kind of integration I mean they're not all like that obviously but there are these really fascinating stories of integration but then also you've got this idea that you see in in her case entirely how this whole vision or this the story of the wild west as you put it earlier you know how that has grown up as well and how men have you know twisted the story to serve their own purposes and to make them come out of it looking brilliant right that is so true and I'm so glad that you picked up on that because that's something I felt really strongly when I was writing the book that that you know it, the wild west is a construct i mean you know things happened you know it's not it's not that they're not true but it's just it's only one aspect of the truth and the fact that it how integrated you know that um well these white mountain men were with their native american their native, you know it was a, it was a moment in history not a very long moment maybe perhaps about 50 years sort of maybe the first half of the uh, 19th century when white men and Native American women lived very harmoniously together, you know, and the, and the white men needed the Native American tribes, you know, in a way that later on they just wanted to dominate them and pretty much get rid of them, you know, really by the end. But those stories of integration are, so, are such hopeful stories. You know, Oliver Oakland's time with the Mohave, it was such a hope, it was such a hopeful time. And she she loved them and it's very hard living like that. You're at the mercy of the of the you know of, of, of the weather and the crops and a lot of them died of starvation. I'm not suggesting it was an easy way to live, it wasn't. But it was it was a kind and gentle, you know, there were there were there was a sort of spiritual life, if you like, about living with them, which really comes across in her in her account, which is utterly lost later on. So it was like a moment in time when there was a possibility that things could have been different. Unfortunately, it didn't work out like that. But 
but you know it it's it's it happened and it will that will always be there that aspect yeah. of it will yeah. always be well, I think you captured it beautifully in the book. And as I say, I was absolutely gripped by it. So um, basically, all our listeners, get your pre-orders in now and uh, read it the minute it arrives. That's the only thing I can say. Let's dig into the main questions. Uh, first up, I want to ask you about two books that are currently on your bedside table, please. The first book is a collection of short stories by Alice Munro called Dear Life. And I could have chosen any of her of her short stories, really, because because she is... The, just the most wonderful writer, Canadian short story writer, uh, winner of the Nobel Prize in, I think, 2013. Um, and her stories are, they're just so extraordinary because they are simple, simple stories. You know, she, they're, none of them are very long. She doesn't, then they're written in this quite this sort of deceptively simple language they are about, again, I'm using um, quotation marks, you know, ordinary people. They're about regular people going about their everyday lives. But they, they are also imbued with this enormous sense of drama. So it's things that happen to, to these people, as happens to all of us. You know, you don't need to be in a war or, or in a terrible, you know, in some huge, you know, political drama to, to, to have something in your life which is sort of the defining moment of your life. So she describes these people. Um, I'll give you an example. There's a wonderful, wonderful story called Amundsen, which takes place in the north of Canada in this very, very icy place. It's about a young woman who goes as a teacher, and you sort of assume that she must be very young, goes as a teacher to a sanatorium, a TB sanatorium, right up in the north of Canada in this frozen wasteland. Uh, and, and the beginning of it, she's obviously very young. There's, there's, you know, she doesn't, very unsure how to get there. She sits in the railway station for a long time. And someone, she thinks someone's calling out Sam, you know, Sam, calling for someone called Sam. And of course, they're not, they're calling San with an mm. N. And she experiences this, the, the sanatorium is actually on a lake. And so there's this wonderful description of this or incredibly austere landscape so the lake has been frozen you know almost as if it's like an enchantment so the waves are still there in the lake but frozen into the you know frozen into this landscape and the and these forests of birch trees so the white um, bark of the birch trees with the black markings on them and then this rather austere sanatorium it's all like something slightly out of a out of a fairy tale and this rather you know anxious young woman her first job you know from she's a city dweller from Toronto going into this completely unknown place and a slightly scary place you know this is a sound for people who are dying of TB anyway the doctor she starts to have a relationship with the doctor there who basically seduces her you know she's a young woman he's 10 or 15 years older than her and he seduces her and he says because you know there's she doesn't have any friends there and he's a companion to her at first then he takes her to bed and he says to her but don't worry I'm going to marry you I'm going to marry you but don't tell anyone so she keeps the secret to herself and they and he finally gets some time off and they go to a neighboring town to find a a, a notary you know they're not going to do it in a church to to get married and she there's a sense that you know she's going to be a woman with a man you know this is in the during the war so it's in the 1940s there's still that very old-fashioned sense that 
a woman has to have a man. It's going to give her status. And basically he pulls out and they sit in the car and he explains to her that he's made a mistake and he's actually not going to marry her after all. But you don't get what's so brilliant about it is that she doesn't give you the actual conversation that they have. She gives she you know, she shows you this young man whose name is Vivian watching a truck delivering, you know, delivering goods to the local store nearby. And it's almost as if her, her life is in free fall. It's this sort of slow motion description, not of what's actually going on, but of something that's off to one side, which gives you the sense of her incredible, you know, sort of disbelief and shock. And he then drives her to the uh, station. He says, don't worry, you know, I'll send your stuff after you. Basically just discards her in the most brutal way. Um, I'll send your clothes after you. Don't, you know, don't tell anyone. Here, here you are. Here's the train to Toronto. Off you go. So this brutal, brutal ending, you know, and then right at the very end, you pick up on her story. And she's, you know, married with children. It's many, many years later. And she's literally bumps into him in the street and sees this man. And, um, you know, you just realise that she's been in love with him all that time. She's been in love with this man who, you know, who ditched her. But it's told with such economy mm. and such, um, simplicity. And somehow you just feel as if you've been told the whole of this young woman's existence i don't i don't know how alice munro does it i mean that is her genius i suppose is that she gives the sense you you you, I, you feel as if you've read war and peace by the end that's the genius of her isn't it i haven't read that story in particular but i think the thing that i've always noticed about her work is that she does sort of incredibly impressive things with time in her stories like you say there's something that she manages to encapsulate a whole life in the space of a few pages or she can sort of jump forward and jump back with such a and I don't know it's almost like alchemy I don't know how she does it on the page right yeah, I don't know how she does it and I've I've really looked to try to kind of deconstruct her story yeah yeah how does she even do this I don't know it is exactly your word is so good alchemy but no I love short stories I do and I suppose your second pick for, for this question as well is also sort of they are smaller segments of stories, aren't they? The Tell me a little bit about your second pick. A Thousand and One Nights. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to go for something that was completely and utterly different. And um, so The Thousand and One Nights, this is a particular version which was, um, you know, there have been, I don't even, I shouldn't think you could even count how many versions there have been of The Thousand and One Nights. You know, they are... Well, in, in, in Europe, they often refer to as the Arabian Nights, although actually they are Indian. I think their origin is Indian and Persian folk tales. Um, and but this particular version is by Hanan al-Sheikh, a Lebanese. Uh, she's a friend of mine, actually, but she's a Lebanese writer. And I think that she uh, um, originally wrote this version it, as a stage play, it's definitely not A Thousand and One Nights. It's about 19 stories, I think, in this version. But Hanan has has, has translated them in a way which is very um, modern without being anachronistic, if I can put it like that. So so they are, it's extremely readable. They are very bawdy, a lot of them. I mean, they're well known to be bawdy. They are also, I was kind of rereading, rereading some of them um, 
when I was preparing for today, and they're very funny, a lot of them. I mm. forgot how funny they are. They're funny and they're bawdy, and they also are incredibly um, speaking of a certain way of life. It's almost like almost like reading a travel book. But it's all about, you know, you follow somebody into the souk and you see them buying the spices and the the flowers and the incense for you know and the and the the fruits for their great banquets uh and it's you know about i mean you, everyone knows that the origin of the thousand and one nights it's Shahrazad who was uh, taken as a wife by the king king of india he's described as actually shah ryan um who had discovered that his wife had been unfaithful to him uh, in fact, in Hanan's version, he, she'd been having a positive orgy, she and her maid. <laughs> when he sees his wife, in fact, it's his brother who sees out of the window the, 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 the queen with 20 um, you know, maid servants, 10 white as jasmine and 10 dark as ebony. And as he looks, the dark as ebony ones cast off their veils and they're actually men. <laughs> they all leap another and disport themselves in a very graphic way so anyway the king decides that no woman is ever faithful so he's only going to have a wife for just one night and then after their marriage night you know he's going to deflower a virgin and then and then he kills her and Shahrazad is the daughter of his vizier uh, and so and then she is clever enough to come up with this idea of telling stories so that he has the king has to go on you know to hear what the next story is going to be and and you know, which is a, 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 I think, quite a common frame, you know, framing device. Certainly in Eastern stories, that framing is not uh, is not unusual. But my God, these stories just they, <laughs> they they really do come at you. So you know, the first one is the story of the fisherman and the genie in the bottle. That's on the first night on her wedding night, Shahrazad. That's the story she chooses. But then. Um, so the genie gets out of the bottle and tells the fisherman that he's going to, he's sworn that he's going to kill the person who uh, who uh, liberates him. And the fisherman tricks the genie into getting back into the bottle. And the genie says, no, 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 you know, you have to let me out. And the fisherman says, no, I know, I know not to trust your words because you remind me of the story of X and Y. <laughs> And then the genie says, no, no, but but if, 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 you, if you let me out, I'll tell you the story of Y and Z. <laughs> and so these stories are stories within stories within stories. And it's just a sort of work of genius, really. And that's just the incredible variety of them. And so it can be the story of the great caliph or it can be the story of the of the porter or the fisherman and 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 these rather wonderful women so the women they are very strong women one of them is even a merchant a working merchant a successful merchant in her in her own right one of the stories which is supposed to be a prototype for the story of cinderella i was reading some i have to say i couldn't quite see that see that connection myself <laughs> but anyway that's the other thing i like about it is that it would be they were all oral stories they would have been oral oral tales and actually I went I, I I'm not sure if it was ever a story from the thousand and one nights that I heard but when I was traveling in Damascus before the war alas and alack um there is a place near in the souk there where a story you can go to hear a storyteller and this, and I, this man and he dressed and he was dressed he had a special turban on and a special sort of 
like a stick, like almost like a distaff. And he walked into this cafe and there was a chair for him there, like a throne. And I remember him getting onto this chair, this very elaborate um, carved chair. Yeah. And and telling his stories. It was all in Arabic, so I couldn't I couldn't understand what the stories were, but just just the fact of him is something yeah. that stayed with me. It stayed with me for, for you know ever after. And did he kind of command the room? I mean, were people oh, completely? Okay. Oh, absolutely, completely. Wow. I mean, completely. But it was like a. It was rather wonderfully ordinary, if you know what I mean. It wasn't like a great stage production. I mean, right. Apart from the fact that he had his special chair and that he, I remember him, this was a long time ago now, but he was dressed, you know, rather beautifully dressed with his turban and his distaff. So he had a very particular place to sit and it was obviously going to be a performance. But it was just people sitting in the, you know, sitting in the cafe. It wasn't as if he was on a stage. How fascinating. Yes, it was tremendous. Oh, brilliant. Well, those are two wonderful recommendations for our listeners if um, they're looking for excellent books of short stories to have by their bedside table thank you so next up katie i think you're going to tell me about a podcast that you've been listening to recently is that right yes i've been listening to a wonderful podcast by john ronson called things fell apart uh and it's for the bbc uh and it's basically about um culture wars so he describes it in in this is his own words there was the battle for dominance between conflict conflicting values and they are all stories that have come out of the states which is where he is based um on on a on a more sort of prosaic level he describes them rather brilliantly as you know the kinds of things that people scream at each other over Twitter on. <laughs> <laughs> so you know that is one episode about you know trans rights. There is one episode about um, you know the uh, the the very very beginnings of trying to um, you know the very first person to get shamed on the internet for um, mm. telling an inappropriate joke. There's there's an extraordinary one about a sort of moral panic over Satan. Satanism, uh, Satanism in amongst teachers in preschools, which is just so bizarre. It sounds like I listened to that one myself, and I thought it's kind of crazy. It just—I it, sort of started listening to it while I was doing something else, and then found myself not able to do the other thing because I was so. Yes. To, this story was so mad, and I thought what was brilliant about it as well, in a way, was he has a very open way. He, even the way that he talks about, say, he'll he'll make a very what I think is a very intelligent comment but the way he comes across is not that he's trying to sort of boast about his intelligence so it seems very much like he's very open to listening to other people's points of view and he's constantly saying and I wanted to find out where this was I wanted to speak yeah. to this person about it it's so open as well it's brilliant I mean it's a brilliant piece of journalism for that for that reason yeah. in, in, the, in that he is not you know he is he is getting to the root of something he doesn't want a screechy you know a sort of screechy headline uh it's the opposite of that he's Mm -hmm. trying to kind of trying to get to the bottom and also he has this amazing I think perhaps because he it's not that he's not judgmental but he allows everybody to tell their side of the story and and he will say things like so we're going to talk about this, but before we do that, I need to tell you another story about this. Mm. So he's giving you the background. 
he's giving you the background and putting these things, putting things into context, because often, often it's the lack of context, I think, that makes people get very, um, very upset uh, about things. And he, he tells these things extremely, extremely carefully. And in, in a way, he, he kind of dials down on the, uh, dials down on the hysteria. And and his stories are completely extraordinary. The one that really struck me was, in fact, the first one called The Thousand Dolls, which is about how the American evangelical movement came to get behind um, the the pro-life, you know, the uh, anti-abortion, anti-abortion argument. It's really worth listening to because it it is so surprising. And I'm going to try to do a really pricey version of it. So the evangelical right, which is now... I mean, you know, Roe versus Wade is is seriously under threat now as a result of um, campaigning. Uh, and but in the 1970s, this was not the case at all. The evangelical church, you know, uh, community thought that that was a Catholic. It was a you know, but it was a sort of Catholic question and not something along you know that they were really interested in at all until this. Um, evangelist called I think he's called Francis Schaeffer made a documentary series this is back in the 70s but documentary series about art he was an art historian so he was like the equivalent of um of um Clark's you know civilization it was but this was how should Christians respond to great artworks uh and he his son Frank Schaeffer uh, also presumably called Francis, but Frank to distinguish him, was a 19-year-old filmmaker, you know, a filmmaking wannabe who helped his dad make this documentary. Frank Jr. was also a teenage parent, had had a child as a as a teenager. And so he was very keen, he was very anti- personally anti-abortion. So they, in this documentary, which was about art, nothing to do with abortion, they managed to tack on this little piece at the end about uh, you know about about abortion, and they took it to the states and had this huge success. Mm. So on the basis of that, they thought, well, let's we must we must make another one, but let's make the whole series about about abortion, um, because the the son Frank wanted to make another mm. wanted to make another series, and they'd made an enormous amount of money. They were filling stadiums with fifty thousand people were coming, wow. you know, and they were selling millions of copies of of his book you know it was an absolutely huge i mean it was a it was a mega 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 success but when they made the series about abortion it didn't have any traction at all at the beginning none whatsoever no one wanted to hear about it none of these evangelical churches they they were giving shows to almost empty stadiums um it it just seems so extraordinary, and so they went on a on a, you know. Then it sort of became their mission. Mm. It became their mission to turn this around, uh, and so they they started to actively campaign um, uh, to be you know to be pro life, and 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 we all know where we are today. To cut a very long story short, this whole thing was completely turned around, and the, and the and the tragedy of it all from where I'm standing anyway, is that Frank Schaefer Jr., who had been the moving force really behind, um, you know, behind these documentaries that then was, of course, picked up in the press, then all the feminist groups started to um, campaign against it. And then that created a sort of oxygen for the media. That That's mm. really, 
why it gained traction because because of the protests against it. It's such an irony. Um, wow. We're protesting against it that it gave it the, yeah, the oxygen of, uh, of publicity. And Frank Jr. then in later life has completely reneged on his former position. No. That I made a terrible mistake. You know, people were killed. You oh, know, people, um, all abortion providers were shot. Yeah, um, you know, you know, a really, really bad thing started to happen, and he changed his mind, and he's then subsequently campaigned for the rest of his life on the opposite side of the story, but not before an enormous amount of damage has been done to women's rights and, and abortion rights in America, where it's you know, today yeah. you hear you hear stories of of um you know, new laws being passed, like in Texas, anti-abortion laws, and I believe in Idaho and all sorts of places. Anyway, that, that, that you know, so they are complex stories that he tells, mm. rather mellifluous, very, very unthreatening with this gentle voice, and he's a brilliant storyteller, and, they, and you can trust him as well, that's the other thing. You know, you can trust him that he's telling you the truth, it's not, it's not just a, a attention-grabbing story. <laughs> <laughs> Our shells will be back in just a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Katie Hickman about John Ronson's very gentle, beautiful voice. <laughs> Next up, Katie, um, can you tell me about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way? Well, I have to say it, I, it, this is an a, it's coming at it from a slightly oblique angle. That's good. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure it answers the question directly, but indirectly it does. So. This my choice is uh, Barbara Kingsolver's book, amazing book called Unsheltered, um, which is not very obviously about feminism at all, except it has th things in it which really, really made me think. 
And it, I think it's one of the... I don't, have you read it yourself? Have I you haven't. I feel terrible. I haven't read it. it. Because it came out quite recently. It was 2018, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it's, not, it's not, a, not an old book by any means. And it's the book that I, that I uh, within the last five years or so, has stayed with me longer than any other novel that I've read. And that has made me think more than any other novel I've ever read. It really, you know, you know how you can read something and you can be quite gripped by it, but then when you finish it, you you, you, you hard put to almost, you know, even really remember what it was about. Yeah, yeah. Not, not the case with this. So it has, an, it has two levels to it. So there's a contemporary story, and then there's a story that takes place in the same uh, location. So it takes place in this place called Vineland, which was a sort of utopian community founded in New Jersey in the mid-Victorian um mid-Victorian era. It's a place that actually exists. So there's the contemporary story and then there's the Victorian story. And the Victorian story is the one which I want to talk about more, which is because one of the characters in it is this extraordinary woman called Mary Treat. And Mary Treat was a scientist and she, she was a scientist at a time when well, women just weren't scientists. I mean, women could not even go to university, certainly not in, in this country. So she was completely, you know, she went to a high school, but she was completely self-taught. Uh, and her, her fields were botany and entomology. Can I just ask, is she based on a real person? or is She is a real person. Okay, oh, well. Wow. She is a person who existed in real life, who I don't think anyone much knows about. No, I never heard of her, I don't. I mean, not that that says anything, but I haven't. No, well, I mean, I've never heard of her either. And I wonder if, if we were, Amer- if Americans have heard of mm. her. She must be one of America's best-known women scientists from the past but I suspect that she isn't and I suspect that that's possibly one of the reasons that Barbara Kingsolver you know sort of wrote about her and in fact because there is no biography of her as far as I can as far as I can find out although you know this woman uh, so so Barbara Kingsolver has her as a as a major character in her in, in in this novel and I think probably would have a greater reach in in one of um, King Silver's novel, rather than a you know a biography that possibly not very many people would mm. would read, but she was an extraordinary individual because she was so groundbreaking. But the thing about her is that she corresponded with Charles Darwin. Extraordinary. She corresponded. Wow. Only did she correspond for over a long period of about five years, corresponded with Darwin and another very prominent American botanist called Asa Gray, who was a Harvard man, and I think. You know, she was talking about uh, sort of in- insect life and plant life were her two areas of expertise. In fact, she had two two species of ant called after her. And there's a wonderful, wonderful episode in the first in the when you first see Mary Treat as a character in the novel, and it's all you know based on this real person, a teacher. The teacher, who's a fictional character, the teacher in the local school, a man mm. called Thatcher Greenwood, who's coming into conflict with his board of governors because he wants to t- teach proper science. You know, the Darwin's Origin of Species had been published by that by that stage. We're talking about the 1870s. Mm. So Thatcher, his name is Thatcher Greenwood. He wants to teach his students, you know, real science. He wants to teach them that human beings are part of a part of nature, not a special God-ordained, you know, um, 
a special category that's got nothing to do with the rest of nature. And he's coming into severe conflict with his board of governors who want him to teach the, you know, sort of religion-based science, which isn't really science at all. And he makes friends with this woman, Mary Treat, who is a real person. So the first time you see Mary Treat... His, his Thatcher Greenwood's wife, who's who is he should never have married because she's very conventional thinking, sort of middle class woman who only really thinks about her bonnets and her and her dresses, is staring in horror out of the window because her neighbour is lying face down on the ground, staring into the grass. And um, they can't understand, and it's terribly unladylike, obviously, to be you know lying face down on the grass. And what is she doing there anyway? Yeah. And it turns out that what she's doing is looking at these ants um, and <laughs> studying these ants. And so, you know, she is an ex- she is obviously treated as an eccentric, uh, an eccentric in the way that she behaves, but also in the way that she, in the way that she thinks. And I just think it's a wonderful. It's a wonderful portrait of of a woman who's sort of out, you know, outside her own her own time doing this mm. very extraordinary thing, and there's something to really to be celebrated. But the but the sort of larger larger theme of the book in, in both the Victorian section and in the modern section, and, and this is what I think is so extraordinary about the book as a whole, is that it's a it's a novel of ideas. Um, and novels of ideas are can be quite often not very successful. You know, the novel part of it is often not very successful. Exactly. It gets very heavy going, right? Very heavy going and, you know, too kind of preachy, trying yeah. to trying to, you know, preach in you know, it. Actually you wonder if the novel form was really the right one to have to have chosen. But I think it's very successful in this because it at the heart of it is how is the idea that how hard it is to persuade people to change their minds about something that they have, you know, ideas or a way of thinking about the world that has been utterly part of the fabric of their life until mm. then, but then has been superseded by, you know, by scientific endeavour. And, you know, when Darwin's Origin of Species, which was published in the... In 1859 so it was it was it was very much um part of the intellectual you know landscape when the novel takes place uh and and certainly informs the, the teacher's you know ideas but of course nobody wanted to no one wanted to believe it it was just too difficult an idea mm. for anyone to really believe how do you take you know how do you persuade people to change their mind and of course you know with anything to do with feminism that is exactly what people are up against certainly in the past is how do you persuade people to change their minds about what it's suitable for women to do what were women able to do what are their you know what is it um you know the fatal thing of what of what is ladylike and what isn't ladylike <laughs> and how that constrains and, and until you know until the present until our own times and certainly until my times how that has constrained what women feel that they're able to do and certainly what men think that they should and shouldn't be able to do. So it has this very, very um, important and capacious idea behind it, which then feeds into the modern the modern story, which is more to do with uh, environmentalism. Uh, and I just, uh, it just stayed with me 
stayed with me more than any other novel has I done for a long time. Well, you've made me want to go and read it for sure. Like I, I, I was fascinated to hear because I didn't read it at the time, and I saw that it. I think it got a few mixed reviews. It just wasn't. It was on my radar, but it never yeah. kind of quite made it. But I'm definitely going to go and read it now. Sure, it's a good. It's a good novel. That's the litmus test. It's got to be a good novel, yeah. first and foremost. Yeah. And I think it is. I've read it twice now, and um, because I, I reread it to make sure that I still, you know, liked it as much as I did when I. Because you know how sometimes when you reread things, yes. Sometimes they don't live up to the, you have a weird sense in your head and then they're not the same. It's not what I thought it was. It's funny, isn't it? I thought this was something completely different to what it, how I'm experiencing it now. But um, no, I, I recommend it. Perfect. When you made a very compelling argument for it as well. So thank you for that. I'm always fascinated. What people answer for this question is so telling and is such a wide range of responses. So it's always a delight to, to hear them. Um, and finally today, Katie, if I may, tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you particularly admire. And again, you've chosen a really interesting, you've chosen someone I've never heard of, which is wonderful. Well, I don't, I mean, she should be a lot better known than she is. So I've chosen a woman, she's called Mama Yosefa Alamang, and she is um, from the Amungme people of Western Papua, West Papua, uh, and she is an environmental uh, environmental activist. And she is, I mean, the, I, one of the people, I mean, it, 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 her story really chimes with me because. I write about in my book, um, uh, you know, my book about the about the West that we've just been talking about. There's a there's a woman in there called Sarah Winnemucca who was a Northern Paiute who campaigned for her people, and uh, I I was thinking about choosing her, and then I thought, no, I need to have somebody who's in the you know out in the world today. But their stories are remarkably are remarkably similar. So Mama Yosefa, as she's known is a woman in her 80s now, uh, and sh where she lives in Western Papua, there is a, an enormous mine. It's called the Grassberg. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called the Grassberg um, Mine. And basically it is, an, you know, Indon it, West, West Papua is part of Indon the in Indonesian archipelago, but it has many indigenous people living in it, of which mm. Mama Yosefa is one. And it's incredibly mineral rich. And so this mine, the Grasberg mine, open cut, it's an open mine. It's the biggest, I think it's the, it can almost be seen from space. It's wow. so big. I mean, it is a mount, it was a mountaintop made of gold. In fact, it's like something out of the thousand and one nights. It is the, it is the richest gold and copper mine that I think has ever been found. And it is mined, it was mined by a company called Freeport Morin, but I think now it's Rio Tinto Zinc is also, is also part of it. And, you know, when mining happens, often it's done at the expense of the indigenous people who live, uh, live round and about, and that is very, very much the case uh, with uh, the people, Mama Yosefa's people. And in fact... You know, there was so much um, pollution caused as, as a result of this mine. You know, 24, it's, it's been mined 24 hours a day and they just have dumped an enormous amount of, um, of waste, mining waste, it's called, they're called tailings, I think, uh, into the river, into all, into all the water sources nearby. And it's 
you know, Mama Yosefa's eldest child died as a result of the pollution in this water. It, 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 I, I don't think it's a dead river yet, but if you use it to wash or, you know, in or drink water in, uh, or I don't think you would ever want to eat anything that comes out of that, that river now. She said um, there used to be a lot of crabs in the river and now there are none. I mean, I think it's had absolutely catastrophic effect on the on the bio, biosphere, uh, uh, you know, on the natural world around it. And this remarkable little one, I mean, she's absolutely tiny. She's in her 80s. I have never met her, but my brother um, is very involved in campaigning for um, environmental rights in Indonesia. And he's met her and travelled with her. And he says that when this tiny, tiny, old now woman walks into a room, the whole room, you know, lights up. She has this extraordinary presence. So she's campaigned. She brought a court case against this huge American uh, mining company and won uh, and forced them to at the very least provide. I think there's some kind of, um, you know, there's a centre, a complex, which includes a clinic and a, an orphanage. What does that tell you? Um, you know, oh all the, the kind of things that you would have thought they would have done right from the onset that they had to be forced in. I mean, I don't think she didn't win the court case, but it shamed mm. the company into doing so, at least something for these indigenous people. But like you say, the things they're providing are not a sign of good, like a good working environment, right? If you have to provide no. medical clinics and no, orphanages. Absolutely, that's not, absolutely right, right? not. And these are people, you know, these people are people with, no power. They have no political power. They have very little, you know, very little voice. And and the, the other thing which makes me admire this woman so much is that, of course, in her community, you know, men are king. And it's very unusual for a woman, you know, you don't have male leaders. It's very unusual for women of any um, kind to be spokespeople or to be listened to. And I think she had not quite as I won't go as far as to say that she had as much trouble, you know, finding her own voice within her own community as within the mining community or the Indonesian government. But um, but she certainly, um, you know, she certainly had to fight to as a woman to get her voice heard. Uh, and so, sort of, I hesitate to say David and Goliath um, because I wish her more, you know, I, but it, that's what it is, really. And I just think it's, she is in a tradition of Indigenous women who have really risked their lives. I mean, certainly a lot of her community yeah. have been killed as a result of trying to stand up for their communities. And she's an extremely brave woman. Uh, and Do you know in particular what it was about her? Like, why, why was it she... Why was she the one who kind of spoke out? Is she particularly um, kind of well-educated? No, I don't, I don't think reason? so. I think it was kind of moral outrage. Uh, I think she was just obviously born the kind of person who couldn't couldn't sit by yeah. and see these things happening. And also very bad things. You know, she lost, she had of six children, I think four have died. I'm not sure if they've all died of tailing sickness, but there's certainly one did. Um, okay. Uh, you know, what, what, can you imagine? One, your eldest child dies from the pollution caused by 
you know, these are like men from outer space coming in. I, I looked it up on, I looked up a YouTube video. You can go online and you can look up Grassberg Mine and you can see what this thing looks like. It's quite extraordinary. And these monstrously, you know, trucks the size of a house that are just burrowing. I yeah. mean, there it's like, is like some awful morality morality tale or some awful folk tale actually i think she was just you know i think a lot of her community died or were killed she has been imprisoned mm. many times uh, she was once in prison for a whole month in a in a in a sewage container i mean it's quite extraordinary that she's lived yes what what yeah wow oh my goodness so she's really so she's risen to the challenge it's just incredible the idea that you have, you know, to go through that much yourself, to see your community devastated like that, to lose family members, and then to still find the energy to go, like you say, and fight this kind of, it's corporation, which presumably has hundreds of millions of dollars behind it, lawyers coming out of its ears, you know, the idea that you as a, as a lone woman could do it's, that. It's completely astonishing. And, you know, and I mean, her size and age have got nothing to do with it, really, but there is something very poignant when you see clips of yes. her, you know, this this small small old woman fighting for the right you know fighting for the rights of of her, of her and she has great moral you know she doesn't have those squads of lawyers and billions of pounds behind her but she has great moral mm. authority uh, and I think is very respected in her own community but and I think you know the tragedy of her own life you know losing a child losing so many losing four out of six children uh, um, and seeing so many of her friends and neighbours uh, and she also uh, die or disappear. And also, the you know, the alcohol was introduced. At a, I'm not sure if it was done on purpose, but a lot of the men in her community have fallen prey to, you know, become addicted to alcohol. So, so that okay. makes life very difficult as well. So they're natural leaders who would be the men, if you're thinking in, you know, community terms, mm-hmm. have had that power taken away from them by their dependence on alcohol right i suppose there are similarities there between what happened with indigenous people in america as well absolutely i mean and and also i'm afraid to say that the moment any minerals are discovered on on land i mean this i write about the gold rush a lot in my book uh, and you Mm. know the gold rush you know it turned this migration which was a few hundred people a few thousand people at most were making the migration every year from the west from the east across to the west you know with within within you know six months of the of, of, of the gold rush being in the of, of the announcement that gold had been found three thousand yes. people made the journey so in the end it was just a numbers game uh, and wherever um silver or gold in particular were found that that really was the death knell for any indigenous people living on that land because you know what was under the soil was so coveted by people so it is it's an old story and the same thing's happening in brazil uh you know the same thing happens all over the world unfortunately and and i think i think her name should be better known as one of the reasons i chose her actually is i think that she is you know, it's easy for these lone voices not 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 to be heard. So the more that we can we can amplify them, the better. Well, thank you very much. I had never heard of her, and I'm very pleased that you've introduced me to her and her brilliant work. So thank you, thank you so much for coming on the show, Katie. It was a real pleasure to have you here. It today. was so much fun. I loved it, despite the difficulty <laughs> of having to choose. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you, everyone, for listening. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. And special thanks to today's guest, Katie Hickman. And tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.